Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi Molly, my name is Stephanie and I live in Sacramento, California. I am a premium submarine making this recording to comment on your most recent, can't remember what you call it, but it's like your essay or your sort of blog post. Everything you wrote, every word you wrote resonated with me deeply. And I loved your poem, Untethered. I have often said that I feel like I am anchorless. I am without an anchor. I'm bobbing around like a little boat on a vast ocean on a dark night. And this is something that I said to my husband when we first met. Uh, and I've said to him since he moved out on May 1st that I felt anchored by him after never feeling anchored. And I now feel anchorless without him, although I am surviving and coping better than expected. I loved what you said, too, about the child in me sees the child in you. My husband, that was one of the first things he said to me in the first week that we became involved is exactly that. The child in me sees the child in you. And that is precious. And we lost that because of issues that we didn't resolve before meeting. Just love everything you put out. Love everything about your podcast and the things you write. And just wanted to say thank you. And I'm glad to be part of this. Welcome to Back from the Borderline. I'm your host, Molly, and I don't want to talk to your personality. I want to talk to your soul. The idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire, burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. You can do this with your personality too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power, you just didn't know that, and now you do. All right, everyone, welcome back. It's another day, it's another episode of Back from the Borderline. My voice sounds extra deep and husky right now because it is six in the morning 
And that's when I'm having to wake up and record because where I'm at right now, it is obviously in the middle of the summer. You might be listening to this in the future when it is no longer the summer, but it is right now. And it is how you say hotter than Satan's asshole where I live. And in order to record the podcast, I have to turn the air conditioning off. I know first world problems, big time. And if we have the air conditioning off, the best time for that to happen is in the early morning, because otherwise my husband Zaz is dying of heat. So here I am with my husky morning voice, which will probably get a little less husky as we progress into the episode, but please enjoy. So I wanted to say thank you to Stephanie for that lovely voicemail. You made me chuckle because you're like your blog post, your writings, what the hell was that thing? What Stephanie is referring to is my monthly sonar system mailer. No wonder she had no idea how to say it because it is a mouthful. But that is the monthly newsletter I put out on my Substack. So if you would like to check that out, you can go to my Substack and the link is in the show notes. The specific newsletter that Stephanie was talking about is my more recent one. And like I mentioned before, if you're listening to this in the future, you are not going to see this as my most recent one, but I wrote a lot about unraveling the impact of emotional neglect for children who were labeled the scapegoat in their family. And if you are enjoying the current series on toxic shame, you'll really, really like this article. So all you have to do if you want to read it is go to my Substack and find the Sonar System mailer for May 2023. And I write a lot about emotional neglect and being the role of the scapegoat, which is interesting because in our last shame series, we talked all about dysfunctional family roles. And I want to read you the poem that Stephanie mentioned from my substack that I wrote called Untethered. And I haven't written poetry in a long time. For those of you who are long-term listeners know that for a while I was pursuing songwriting as my career. And writing is just something that is very, very close to my heart, whether that just be free writing um, writing fiction, nonfiction, and also poetry and songs. I just love, love, love the written and spoken word, obviously, since we are sitting here listening to my podcast. But here is the poem that I wrote called Untethered. Many have never been truly and consciously held, so they lack the ability to hold themselves. For these same people, spaces like the ocean, deep space, the desert sky, inspire fear. It's too much emptiness to handle. They've never understood what it means to feel cradled in the abyss, forever dangling, forever untethered, belonging nowhere to no one. And I finished the substack piece that I wrote here with the child in me sees the child in you. And Stephanie mentioned that in her voicemail. And, you know, Stephanie talked about 
her relationship with her partner and how it began with them recognizing the child in each other. And I thought this voicemail from Stephanie was incredibly timely as we're moving here into our fifth week of our exploration of toxic shame because toxic shame can stop us from really seeing each other because we are in relationships leading with our toxic shame unconsciously. We are in relationships as our false selves. And so oftentimes too, when we begin our recovery journey, we wake up and realize that a lot of the relationships we're in are trauma bonds. And maybe we got into a relationship with someone or a friendship with someone when we were a completely different version of ourselves. We are constantly changing and constantly evolving. And doing this work is really imperative because it allows you to wake up to the reality of who you really are. So thank you again, Stephanie, for that. If you want to subscribe to my Substack and check out that longer piece that I wrote on childhood emotional neglect and the scapegoat child role, then you can do that by clicking the link in my episode description to subscribe and finding the Sonar System mailer from May 2023. We have covered so much ground up until this point, and now we're moving into part five of our exploration of toxic shame. And on the last episode, we really dived into how this plays out from a generational perspective. We explored the case study and vignette from John Bradshaw's book of the character of Max and how toxic shame permeated multiple generations of his family and ended up completely devastating Max's life and passed on in the lives of his children. And so since the last episode, you may have had your wheels turning about the different generations in your family and the different types of unspoken family rules and roles that have maybe been forced upon you and your siblings and your parents and their parents. And at this point, it's quite common to number one, feel pretty overwhelmed, sad, grieving, but then also a different sense, a sense of zooming out, a sense of realizing it didn't start with me and it didn't start with your parents either. Typically it goes way further back and this in itself, this realization, this zooming out and the realization of that it didn't start with you is a huge healing milestone because that realization in itself dismantles a tiny little chunk of toxic shame because part of toxic shame is truly believing that something is inherently wrong with you. And when you realize that it didn't start with you and maybe it didn't even start with your parents, it's not that you are some broken, flawed child that was the exception to the rule. You are just part of this fabric of toxic shame that's been passed down from generation to generation. And the only way that it's been passed down is through secrecy and 
not shining a light on it. And now you can do that. You can be a cycle breaker. So today we're going to be talking about how all of the things that we discussed in the previous episodes, and especially the last one, how this generational movement of toxic shame filters down into us and how this leads to us experiencing shame as a state of being and how a lot of this is born out of the core wound of abandonment trauma. And if you have ever identified with any of the traits or symptoms of what is known right now as borderline personality disorder or even CPTSD, this episode is really going to hit home for you because a lot of that has to do with real or perceived feelings of abandonment. That is quite literally one of the symptoms of BPD. And a lot of it is projected abandonment from childhood trauma and toxic shame. So let's get into it. When healthy shame morphs into toxic shame, and in the first episode, we really described that we need a sense of healthy shame. It's adaptive. It helps us realize our limits. It helps us realize that we are not perfect. And it keeps us safe to a certain extent. But when that healthy shame turns into toxic shame, it is through what we call the internalization process. We're internalizing the shame. We're identifying with it. Remember, we described in a previous episode, when you do something you regret, instead of saying that I did something that I'm not proud of, or I did something bad, I am bad. There's a huge difference between making a mistake and being a mistake. The healthy feeling of shame in this internalization process is lost. The benefits, the adaptive qualities of shame is lost. And what happens when we move into toxic shame is that we almost become frozen. We are a frozen being and we believe at our core that we are flawed, that we are defective. And this internalization process, the transformation here from healthy shame to toxic shame involves a few different dynamics. First, what happens is we identify with those shame-based models that we discussed in a previous episode. Then secondly, the trauma and abandonment fears and the shame all overtake our genuine feelings, needs, and drives. And so we no longer are in touch with our true feelings, our true needs, and our true drives or desires. And then thirdly, the interconnection and magnification of that visual memory quilt of toxic shaming memories and the retaining of really shame-based things that we've heard and seen that are stored in our body. As we know, it's a very, very new realization in the field of 
mental health and emotional well-being is that trauma is stored in our bodies. It is stored in our fascia. It's held within us and wanting to be released. The book by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, The Body Keeps the Score, and the work of incredible pioneers in the field of trauma, like Peter Levine, who wrote a book called Waking the Tiger, are all realizing that this is the case. And trauma and how it's stored in our body is very closely identified with the internalization process of toxic shame. And this is how healthy shame goes into shame as a state of being. Dictionary.com defines abandonment as an act or instance of leaving a person or thing permanently and completely. But when we're talking about toxic shame, the very word abandonment goes far beyond the understanding of that word. We often think of abandonment as that physical desertion, being physically left. But when we are shining a light on toxic shame, it requires us to really go beyond the traditional meaning of some words. And so let's expand together the meaning of the word abandonment. And we're going to talk about different aspects of abandonment, like emotional abandonment, deprivation, narcissistic deprivation, fantasy bonding, and the neglect of our developmental dependency needs and the enmeshment in family systems. Abandonment can play out in so many different ways rather than just being physically left. Like you imagine the stereotypical image of maybe a dad leaving his family and that happens still, and it's incredibly traumatizing. And you imagine the little kid, you know, standing at the window, wondering where the physical presence of their parent is. Abandonment can come in so many different forms and includes all different forms of abuse. Now, Alice Miller, who we have spoken about in multiple previous episodes in our shame series, wrote a book that is incredibly powerful that I highly recommend that you look into. It's called The Drama of the Gifted Child. And in her book, Alice Miller described the almost paradoxical or maybe like confusing, right? Fact that many good decent, devoted parents actually abandon their children. She also talks about the equally head-fucky or paradoxical fact that many incredibly gifted and highly successful people are actually unconsciously driven by this deep-seated chronic depression and gnawing emptiness that results from their true and authentic selves being shamed and abandoned in childhood, while on the outside it looks like they have 
good, kind, devoted parents. And that is very, very confusing and difficult to unpack. So John Bradshaw kind of talks about this being abandoned in childhood from our true and authentic selves at the hands of our caregivers. He calls this the whole in the soul reality. So Alice Miller's work is really great for expanding our understanding of abandonment trauma. She doesn't really use toxic shame as a major organizing principle of her work. So you won't really hear toxic shame mentioned, but it's very, very easy to see how the loss of our authentic self with this accompanying hole in the soul, nagging emptiness, this chronic depression is just another way to describe toxic shame. So when we're abandoned, we are left alone. And this can happen through actual physical absence, but you can also be abandoned when someone is physically present. So in fact, to be abandoned by someone who's physically present is actually much more crazy making. So we're going to go back and visit our friend Max again from last episode. We really deeply explored his family. And I said this previously, but I highly recommend that you listen to this series in chronological order, starting from episode one. But if you're just making your way here and you don't want to listen to all five episodes for whatever reason, I don't know why that would be. But at least go back and listen to episode four, because really none of this is going to make sense unless you go back and listen to episode four. So that being said, let's talk about abandonment as actual physical absence. Our case study character, Max, who suffered with so much toxic shame, he began his life with double strikes against him. He was not planned. He was a quote unquote accident child, right? He wasn't even really wanted. He was an oopsie pregnancy in a very, very dysfunctional marriage that was only becoming more dysfunctional. Max's father's drinking had escalated to a point that his wife, Felicia, had attempted to separate from him on multiple occasions to try to control his drinking. So during Max's first eight years of life, he watched his parents separate four different times. During three of these separations, Max was also separated from his brother, Ralph, and his sister, Maxine. And so Max and his mom, Felicia, lived with two of his mom's sisters, while Max's brother and sister lived with their grandmother, Felicia's mother. A child needs structure and predictability. He needs to be able to count on someone. It reminds me when I went to go babysit for my cousins, Mark and Fran, when I was living in London. They also live in London as well. And my cousin Fran had my little baby cousin, Abigail. And when I went over to 
babysit Abigail. I just thought I would, you know, hang out with the baby, sit there, chill. But Fran told me when I sat down, she said, okay, so at two o'clock, Abigail has a snack. At three o'clock, she has playtime, free time, you know, as much as an infant can have free time. I can cuddle her and hang out with her on the couch. Then at X time, she eats another meal. At this time, she goes to bed. And I remember being blown away by the strictness of the structure and thinking, oh, that's not necessary. But I contrasted babysitting Abigail and the babies that I used to babysit when I would do babysitting in like the 90s and early 2000s. I guess I wasn't babysitting in the 90s. I was too young. I was definitely doing most of my babysitting in the early 2000s. When there was no structure, that's when I would walk into homes where kids would be crying or, you know, throwing temper tantrums. And what I was blown away by is when I babysat my cousin Abigail and I, I followed this schedule to a T, Abigail never fussed. It's almost like she knew exactly what was coming next. She knew when she was going to eat. She knew when she was going to bed. And when I set her down in her crib, I put her little white noise machine on, just like Fran told me, and she peacefully drifted off to sleep. Kids love structure. Kids love predictability. Even in France, I just read a book called Bringing Up Bebe, which is really good and I highly recommend it to anyone. I'm kind of preparing myself to eventually be a parent in the future. And Bringing Up Bebe is written by an American journalist who moved to France and was blown away by the differences between French and American parenting. And one of the things she brings up in the book is that French parents often speak about a cadre, and I'm going to probably be butchering that, but essentially cadre means structure and that kids need boundaries. It's almost like giving them a playpen of boundaries, but once they go outside of those boundaries, that's when you enforce them. But kids have a sense of freedom, but within the cadre, which also means like the structure. So I'm bringing this up to you because kids desperately need boundaries. They need structure. They need to know what their routine is because otherwise their little lives are in disarray. They have to be able to count on their parents. In his book, Healing the Shame That Binds You, John Bradshaw also writes about how intuitive and smart kids are even when they're very little. He writes, I remember when my son was about three years old, he would ask me to read him a story at night. His favorites were The Little Engine That Could and Peter Rabbit. After a few readings, these stories became rather boring to me as a parent. I used to try and turn two pages simultaneously, the old two pages at a, at a time trick. <laughs> I was rarely able to do this without getting caught. To my son's young mind, if a piece of that story he was familiar with was missing, it was disastrous. It would put his little world completely out of order. And John writes that in a more dramatic way, for a child to be continuously moved from his family and from his cadre, from his structure, it causes severe upset and trauma. Children need the presence of both of their parents, ideally. Even if you look back into our, our tribal ancestry, all of us come at, from one point, from tribal beginnings. Haven't you heard it takes a village to raise a child? It's because that's true. 
Historically, we used to have so much more support. Families used to have grandparents close by, community members close by. And now so often we find that single parents are doing the job of what a village or a tribe used to do. But now in our modern age, at least the child does have a better chance at having this sense of safety if they do have both parents. I'm not saying there aren't incredible single parents or unconventional families out there that don't do an amazing job at meeting the needs of of a child. So I want to add that disclaimer. But when we're thinking from a Freudian perspective, which it's important to just explore that, why not? From a Freudian perspective, For example, a male child needs to break his mother bonding by having a father to bond with, right? And some of these Freudian beliefs are quite archaic, but there is some truth to some of these things. Bonding, though, involves spending time together. It involves spending quality time together, not just like what we described on the last episode where a parent is swiping on their phone and scrolling on whatever app they might be using, and the child happens to be in the same room, maybe on an iPad. That's not quality time. Bonding involves spending time together, quality time, sharing feelings, sharing warmth, physical touch, and displaying a genuine desire with one another. So in the case of Max, Max's dad was hardly ever around. He didn't get quality time with his dad. When his dad wasn't working, he was drinking. And so Max's dad gave Max very, very little of his time. And a young child can't understand that their parent is an addict. They can't understand that their parent is sick with an addiction. Children are limited in their logical ability. You hear all the time that your brain isn't fully developed as a child. And if you ever had your parent tell you that, you can understand how fucking infuriating that was. I did experience that. My mom a couple of times did tell me, your brain isn't fully developed yet. And while it was true, that really wasn't something I wanted to hear (laughs) as a child. And now it's kind of funny because my brain wasn't fully developed enough to understand that my brain wasn't developed Isn't that funny? Um, But that being said, children don't understand addiction. They don't understand that their parent is sick. The earliest way that we have of thinking as children is through our feelings. And this is called felt thought. Children are also by nature, very egocentric. Talk about super intense main character syndrome. And this doesn't mean that they're selfish in that typical meaning of the word selfish. They're not morally selfish. They're not even really capable of moral thinking until they're seven or eight years old. And this is called the age of reason, right? Seven or eight. Even at that age, even at seven or eight years of age, when children start to begin to develop the capacity for moral thinking, their thinking still has very, very prominent egocentric elements to it. Children aren't capable of pure altruistic behavior until they're 16 years old. Really let that sink in. 
What is altruistic thinking? Altruistic thinking refers to the cognitive process or mindset where an individual is able to think about the well-being and interest of others and is capable of even placing others' needs above their own. Altruistic thinking involves a genuine concern for the welfare of other people and a willingness to take action to benefit them, even at a personal cost. And this requires empathy, compassion, the ability to understand and identify with the needs of others. It involves recognizing the interconnectedness of individuals and the importance of promoting the welfare of the broader community and society. So we are not capable of pure altruistic behavior until we're 16 years old. Think about that. Think about how many parents put so much expectations on children and their developing brains. We are expected to display so much more cognitive functioning and maturity well before we're even able to. And in addition to that, many of us never even had that modeled for us. So give yourself some fucking slack if you were raised in a home with adults who never moved through their own developmental stages, who maybe even never had that modeled for them. And then you as a child were expected to be so much more capable than you were able to. And especially if you were a teenager who acted out and maybe raked havoc and you felt like you were a quote unquote bad kid, let this make you feel a little bit better. You are not capable of pure altruistic thinking until 16 years old. And even then that faculty is still developing. And even then, even if your brain was capable of it, if you never had it modeled for you, you had nothing to go off of. So children are egocentric completely when they're very, very young. And egocentric thinking means that a child will take everything personally. Even if a parent dies, a child is capable more capable of making it their fault than understanding the wider reasons. A child might even say something like, if my mommy really loved me, she wouldn't have gone to God's house. She would have stayed with me, right? This is how a little child's brain might think. We give time to people that we love The impact of not having our parents' time, true quality presence, creates a feeling of being completely worthless. If as a child, we're worth less than our parents' time, attention, or direction, that is devastating. The young child's egocentric main character syndrome always interprets events from an egocentric perspective. So if mommy and daddy aren't around, it's because it's my fault. There must be something wrong with me. Or they would want to be with me. I know what mommies and daddies do in movies and stories and on the shows I watch and when I'm out in the world. 
Why aren't my mommy and daddy here? I must be a bad kid. That's what they think. Children are egocentric because they haven't had enough time to develop ego boundaries. So what's an ego boundary? An ego boundary is an internal force field, an internal sense of strength where a person is able to guard their inner space, their inner world. And without those ego boundaries, without boundaries at all, we have no protection. John Bradshaw described that a strong boundary is like a door with the doorknob on the inside. He says that a weak ego boundary is like a door with the doorknob on the outside. A child's ego is like a house without any doors. So it's important to know too that children are egocentric by nature. This is adaptive. This is how we're wired. It's not a choice. So when you see parents expecting so much more from their very small child, it goes to show how little that parent knows about child development and the psychosocial stages of development. Children's sense of egocentricity is like that temporary door and doorknob that John Bradshaw describes. And they use that doorknob until strong boundaries can be built. And strong boundaries result from identification with parents who themselves have strong boundaries and teach their children by modeling the boundaries. Children don't have any experience. They need their parents' experience. It's essential. And by identifying with their parent, they have someone who they can depend on outside themselves. And as they internalize their parent, they form a dependable guide inside themselves. And if their parent isn't dependable, they're not going to develop this inner resource. So, so many of us are walking around without that internal safety net of boundaries. Let's talk about emotional abandonment. Children need mirroring and echoing. These mirroring and echoing behaviors are supposed to come from our primary caretaker's eyes. And typically this is from the mother. For those of you who have watched the still face experiment, which if you haven't watched that, it's devastating. I highly recommend that you look up the still face experiment on YouTube. It does an incredible job at displaying the importance of mirroring behaviors between mother and child. Mirroring means that someone is there for the child and reflects back to them who they truly are at any given moment in time. In the first three years of our life, each of us needs, and when I say needs, it is a developmental need. You need in the first three years of your life to be admired, to be taken seriously. We need to be accepted for the very one, the very unique person we are. And getting these mirroring needs is what author Alice Miller calls our basic 
narcissistic supplies. And for anyone who has spent any time in the, I believe, quite toxic world of narcissistic abuse recovery circles, it can get very pathologizing and very projecting very quick. I'm not saying there's no good resources there, but you often hear in narcissistic abuse recovery circles, the concept of narcissistic supply. But what's not often spoken about is that getting mirroring needs is how we get narcissistic supply. We actually need narcissistic supply. It's healthy, but it can go wrong, but we're not talking about that right now. So these early forms of narcissistic supply that we receive from our mirroring of our caregivers, this results from good mirroring by a parent with good boundaries. So when we have a parent with good boundaries that provides adequate mirroring, the different dynamics that take place are as follows. First, our aggressive impulses as children can be neutralized because they don't threaten the parent right? Our feelings aren't threatening the parent. You see like a child screaming and throwing a tantrum and imagine the the parent that's just going, why are you doing this? Right? And the child is perceiving, wow, my emotions are scary to my caregiver. Conversely, a parent who has good boundaries and good mirroring can get down on the level of the child and maybe say, I understand that you're upset, Let's talk about it. What do you need, right? And what does the child experience then? Oh, my big feelings are not threatening to my parent. So we can also get good narcissistic supply when our parent has good boundaries and good mirroring. This also means that our striving for autonomy is not experienced as a threat to the parent, right? When we want to go off and explore, we don't have an emotionally immature parent that's going, don't leave me. I need you to be here with me every second, right? That like enmeshed parent, a healthy parent understands that it is part of the development of the child to strike out on one's own and being able to do that without our parents perceiving that as a threat is another way we get good, basic narcissistic supply. Another thing is we are allowed to experience and express ordinary impulses like jealousy, rage, sexuality, defiance. These are all natural feelings. And when our parent is healthy and mirrors us and has good boundaries, the parents are able to handle these big, big impulses in the child because the parent has not disowned those feelings within themselves. Often you'll see a parent react incredibly erratically to a child's burgeoning sense of sexuality because they have disowned their own sexual feelings. So next, when a parent has healthy mirroring and healthy boundaries, as a child, you don't feel like you have to please your parent and you can develop your own needs at your own pace. But unfortunately, when this is absent, You know, so many occasions where children feel like they're more worried about the needs of their mommy and daddy, making sure mommy and daddy are happy. And at this point, 
they're not getting the healthy narcissistic supply that they need. Children need to feel like they can have their needs and that the needs of the parents should be something that are taken care of by the parents and their network. It should never be something that is put on the child. So another thing that happens when a parent has good boundaries and healthy mirroring is that the child can depend on and use his parents because the parents are separate from him. Something else is the parent's independence and good boundaries allow the child to separate themselves and objects. We've talked about object relations theory before on the podcast too. Another thing that happens when the parent has good boundaries and healthy mirroring is a child is allowed and feels safe to display what are called ambivalent feelings. The child can learn to feel about himself and about his parents. He can learn to feel the good and the bad rather than splitting off certain parts as all good and all bad. Is this starting to sound familiar for any of you who identify with symptoms of BPD? This is further proof that all of these disorder and dysfunction labels are rooted in one place in this toxic shame. So lastly, another thing that happens when the parent displays healthy boundaries and healthy mirroring is that the beginning of true object love is possible because the parents love the child as an object separate from themselves. And this is just essentially stating the importance of not being enmeshed with your parents. You have to be a separate being from your parents and have your separate life and your own personal stuff going on and your parents need theirs and you choose as separate beings to love one another and you think about families that are maybe like old school families where it's like blood is everything if you're not with us you're against us right this is an enmeshed family system where it's like we are one family you're no longer an individual person with your individual needs you have to sacrifice those for the family So what happens if parents don't have these healthy boundaries and don't provide adequate mirroring that show that separation between the parent and the child? What happens if our parents are shame-based or needy with their children? What happens is that they're unable to take over the mirroring narcissistic supply giving function for the child, which is necessary. In addition to that, the fact that the parents are primarily shame-based is a clear signal that they never got any of their own narcissistic supplies given from parents who had healthy boundaries and healthy mirroring. It goes back, back, back generationally. And these types of parents who never had healthy boundaries modeled for them are adult children. In recovery circles, they're referred to as adult children. They're still in search of a parent or an object who will be totally available to them at all times. Many of us relate to this. 
This reminds me of the favorite person or FP phenomenon in BPD discourse. So for these types of parents who are adult children, children raising children, the most appropriate objects of narcissistic gratification, because they never received that healthy narcissistic supply, become their own children. Their children become objects that meet their needs rather than them as parents understanding that that is their job to meet their child's needs. So in the drama of the gifted child, Alice Miller touches on this. She writes, a newborn baby is completely dependent on his parents. And since their caring is essential for his existence, he does all he can to avoid losing them. From the very first day onward, the child will muster all of his resources to this end, like a small plant that turns toward the sun in order to survive. So what a shame-based adult child mother was unable to find in her own mother, she attempts to find in her own children. And this is how you think about those moms, you know that archetype of mom who seems to just live for their children. And on the outside, they might seem like a really good mom, but maybe you kind of sense that there's something a little bit unbalanced under the surface. And this might lead to a shame-based mom who, because of her own inability to find in her mom what she needs, The mom is projecting this and trying to find that in her kids. So in this instance, the child is someone who is always at the mom's disposal. And the thing is, a child can't run away. A child can be used as an echo, completely centered on the mom. The child, in the perception of a mom like this, will never desert her. And the child can be totally controlled and offers full admiration and absorbed attention to the mom. Children have this beautiful ability to perceive this deep need in a parent like this. It's kind of tragic. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A child unconsciously knows. So by taking on the role of supplying the shame-based mother's narcissistic gratification in this instance, 
the child secures love and a sense of not being needed and not being abandoned. It's actually adaptive. Think about it. The child senses, oh, I need to do this because my mom is giving me these vibes. And in order to not be abandoned and needed by my mom, I need to assume this role. I need to meet her needs. And I want you to understand that this process is a reversal of the order of nature. That's what John Bradshaw wrote. He wrote, in this case, the child is taking care of the parent's needs rather than the parents taking care of the child's needs. And this child caretaker role is a head fuck because in an attempt to win the love and approval of the parent and avoid being abandoned, the child is being abandoned. And since the child is there for the parent, there's no one there to mirror the child's feelings and drives and to nurture the child's needs. So any child growing up in this kind of environment has been deeply wounded by what's called narcissistic deprivation. And this kind of happening can happen even in the best of families. Alice Miller, another segment from the drama of the gifted child, she writes this, there are a large number of people who suffer from narcissistic traits who often had sensitive and caring parents from whom they received much encouragement And yet these people are suffering from severe depression. They enter analysis or therapy in the belief with which they grew up that their childhood was happy and protected. But the thing is, is that more often than not, these narcissistically deprived children are talented, gifted, and super successful, high-achieving people that have been praised and admired for their talents and achievements their entire lives. So anyone looking at them on the outside would think, wow, this person has got it all together. I wish I could be like them. They're strong, they're stable, they're self-assured. But under the hood, the exact opposite is often the real case. Alice Miller wrote, behind all this, There lurks depression, the feeling of emptiness and self-alienation, a sense that life has no meaning. So once this drug of grandiosity is ripped away, as soon as they are no longer the superstar or the super achiever or the most beautiful one in the room, whatever they've been praised for their whole life, they are plagued by these deep feelings of shame and guilt that they can't explain. You might be able to relate to this. I am this kind of person myself. It's really hard for people from the outside looking in, looking at you if you are super successful and you've seemingly got it all together. This is how frustrating it can be to be labeled quote unquote high functioning. When deep down, We know how shame-based we truly are. As children, maybe you were loved for your achievements and your performance or what you looked like or what you represented rather than for your true self, your true 
an authentic self in this instance was abandoned. It can take years to be able to reconnect with your own true feelings, with your anger, with your jealousy, your sadness, your loneliness. This disconnection with our true feelings is actually a result of the abandonment. This is where the emptiness comes from. This is where my poem that I wrote, Untethered, comes into play. No one was there to affirm your feelings through mirroring. A child can only experience its feelings when there's someone there who accepts them fully, that isn't threatened by them, that can name them and mirror back to them and support the feelings. So another consequence of emotional abandonment is a loss of our sense of self. When we're used as another person's narcissistic supply, a person tends to develop in a way that reveals only what's expected of them. And it ultimately ends up, their sense of self just fuses with an act or a performance. And so this is how we become a human doing instead of a human being. This is how we have no real sense of authentic self. And again, this is a symptom of what is known as BPD, which is why I think we need to throw this label in the trash because it's all down to toxic shame. There's nothing disordered about you. You just didn't have these needs met. So we've got another daddy, psychology daddy entering the chat. His name is Donald Woods Winnicott. And Winnicott was an English pediatrician and psychoanalyst who is especially influential in the field of object relations theory and developmental psychology. And chances are, if you are a hardcore BPD recovery geek, you'll have heard of object relations and how people with quote unquote BPD struggle with object relations. Winnicott lived between 1986 and 1971. So just to give you a sense of when he was doing his thing, Winnicott studied what happened when we lose our sense of self, when we become a human doing without any real sense of our authentic sense of self. And according to Winnicott, a child's true self in this instance remains in what he calls a state of non-communication. And John Bradshaw describes this state of non-communication in a little less of an academic sense. He said, it feels like no longer being in me. And this type of person, when we're in a state of non-communication with ourselves, we feel emptiness. We feel like we don't know where home is. And we feel a sense of futility. Futility means pointlessness or uselessness. So you'll often hear about the horror and futility of war. War is pointless and useless. And so when we're in a state of non-communication, we feel futile. Probably the most devastating consequence of emotional abandonment is what 
psychologist and author Robert Firestone calls a fantasy bond and what Alice Miller calls bond permanence. So a child who's been denied the experience of connecting with their own feelings is consciously and then unconsciously through this identification with the parent is dependent on his parents. So Alice Miller writes in the drama of the gifted child about this fantasy bond. She writes, he, the child, cannot rely on his own emotions. He's not come to experience his emotions through trial and error. He has no sense of his own real needs and is alienated from himself to the highest degree. So when we're alienated from ourselves to the highest degree, we can't separate ourselves from our parents. We're fantasy bonded with our parents. We have, in this instance, an illusory or fantasy connection, or in other words, we think there's a love relationship between ourselves and our parents, but actually we're fused and enmeshed with our parents. This is not a relationship. This is entrapment. So later on, this fantasy bond, this entrapment will be transferred and projected onto other relationships, primarily our intimate relationships in our adult life. This fantasy bonded person is still completely dependent on validation and affirmation from their partner, their children, or the people in their lives. They're completely dependent on their children. A fantasy bonded person never has a real connection or a real relationship with anyone. Why? Because there's no real authentic self there to relate to. The real parents who only accepted the child when the child pleased them as parents remain these critical voices in the mind. And the true self hides from these voices just like the real child did. And so at this point, the loneliness of the home of our parents is replaced by a loneliness and isolation within our inner selves. So what results of this? Well, grandiosity is what results. A grandiose person is admired everywhere and cannot live without being admired. So if a grandiose person's talents somehow fail them, it's catastrophic. A grandiose person must be perfect at all times. Otherwise, depression is going to soon be knocking at the door. That empty feeling is coming for you. And often the most gifted people among us are driven in exactly this way. Many of the most gifted people in the world suffer from the deepest, darkest, and most severe depression. Depression at its core is really about the lost and abandoned child within. Reminds me of the voicemail, the child in me sees the child in you. So Alice Miller wrote, 
One is free from depression when self-esteem is based on the authenticity of one's own feelings and not on the possession of certain qualities. I'm going to read that again because it's really important. One is free from depression when self-esteem is based on the authenticity of one's own feelings and not on the possession of certain qualities. Emotional abandonment is also multi-generational. The child of the narcissistically deprived parent usually becomes an adult with a narcissistically deprived child and will use their children as they were used for their own narcissistic supply. So then the child becomes an adult child, babies raise in babies, and the cycle is repeated and repeated and repeated. So in the case of Max, we're going back to his story now, his parents were narcissistically deprived themselves. So Max's dad, Jerome, used these fantasy bonds with alcohol and sex for his own narcissistic supply. So while Max's dad used his addictions as narcissistic supply, Max's mother, Felicia, used Ralph, her oldest son, who was put in that star role or little dad role, as her narcissistic gratification. So then... Ralph had to become the family star, capital star, because it's a role he's forced into at the expense of his true authentic self. And he adopted that role fully in his adulthood as the moralistic, super achieving, self-righteous Christian pastor. Maxine and Max, his sister, I love how in John Bradshaw's book, he names the sister Maxine. I'm like, let's come up with another girl named Max and Maxine. But Max's older sister, Maxine, were both in that role of lost child. Felicia, Max's mom, even though she was very, very dutiful, right? So she showed up, she made the kids food, they had clothes on their back, the house was taken care of but she was never really there to mirror or affirm Ralph, Max, and Maxine's emotions. So Max reenacted this same pattern on his own children. He used his own kids for his own narcissistic supply. He would immediately run to his children for nurturing and solace after he would have one of his runaway episodes. And he would especially use his daughters as that source of nurturing. And John Bradshaw, the author of Healing the Shame That Binds You, who presented this vignette of a client that he worked with named Max, who of course he changed the name of, John wrote, never once did I see any of Max's kids express anger, hurt, or resentment to Max. And this was because they'd never connected with their own feelings. And John also said that Max would become enraged when John, his therapist, would speak of his reenactment of his abandonment of his own kids. Max's kids also thought that they had a good childhood. And 
this is how John describes there's a delusional nature of the deprived narcissistic supply. It causes people to not be aware of what they're doing. It causes kids to think, I had a fine childhood, but then why do I feel so empty? Why do I have no sense of self? Why do I identify with the symptoms of BPD or CPTSD, right? When emotionally abandoned people describe their childhood, it's typically without much feeling. Alice Miller wrote in The Drama of the Gifted Child, they recount their earliest memories without any sympathy for the child they once were. Very often, they show disdain and irony, even derision and cynicism. In general, there is a complete absence of real emotional understanding or serious appreciation of their own childhood vicissitudes and no conception of their true need beyond the need for achievement. The internalization of the original drama has been so complete that the illusion of a good childhood can be maintained. So in the case of Max, Max's kids idolized him and idealized him, and they perpetuated and continued this delusion of their happy childhood. But Max himself showed no real anger towards his parents either. Only when he was drunk would the rage towards his father come out. But he didn't really have any overt anger towards his mother. Now that we understand emotional neglect and how that is tied to toxic shame and abandonment, it's time to talk about abandonment through abuse. All forms of child abuse are forms of abandonment. When a parent abuses a child, the abuse is always, and I'm okay with using extremes here, the abuse is always about the parent's own issues and not the child's. This is why it's abuse. Abuse is abandonment because when children are abused, no one's there for them. What is happening is being told to the child that it's for their own good. But the thing is, it's not about the kid at all. It's about the, the parent. These types of exchanges, these transactions between children and parents of the perpetuating of abuse onto a child is crazy making. You often hear the phrase crazy making behavior and what is crazy making, especially in the context of recovery language. This refers to behavior or situations that create confusion, chaos, and emotional distress. It describes actions or patterns that can disrupt our sense of stability and making it really difficult for us to maintain our recovery or our mental well-being. Crazy-making behaviors are often manipulation, gaslighting, or psychological games that leave the person on the end of them feeling uncertain, anxious, or overwhelmed. And crazy making behavior can include different tactics like denying that something ever happened, 
changing the rules constantly or changing the expectations, creating a chaotic environment, or like deliberately provoking or poking at emotional reactions. You'll often hear the term crazy making in recovery communities, such as those like addressing addiction or codependency, like the AA community or NA community, to describe the behaviors of people who might contribute to the challenges faced by the people in recovery. Recognizing and identifying crazy-making patterns is really important for anyone in recovery to be able to reestablish healthy boundaries, maintain emotional well-being, and continue a journey towards health and finding our sense of self again. So when we're talking about child abuse of any kind, it's crazy-making. It doesn't make sense. It causes us to question everything because this type of dynamic shouldn't happen, but our parent is telling us that it's our fault. And so this induces shame. And in each act of abuse, the child is shamed further. And because young kids are egocentric, as we've described, in an adaptive, healthy, fine, normal way, we make ourselves responsible for the abuse. So the child says to themselves in this kind of situation, it's not my, my caretakers couldn't be crazy or emotionally unwell. My mommy and daddy are amazing. They're so much smarter and stronger than me. It must be something wrong with me. So a child has to maintain this level of delusion and idealization to survive. Kids' minds are magical, completely egocentric, and also not logical. They're completely and utterly dependent upon their parents for survival in the world. And this idealization of our parents as children ensures our survival how could my parents be sick or crazy? If my parents were sick and crazy, how could I even survive, right? It must be me. I'm the crazy one. There must be something wrong with me. Or my parents wouldn't treat me like this. So you can understand how a child in an abusive situation doesn't stand a chance. All forms of abuse contribute to this internalization of shame. But some kinds of abuse are much more intensely shaming than others. On our next episode, we are going to be diving into some of the most intensely shaming forms of abuse and the connection to toxic shame. We're going to be diving into sexual abuse, physical sexual abuse, overt sexual abuse, and covert sexual abuse, which shows up as like verbal boundary violations. We're going to also be talking about physical abuse and how these different things come together in what John Bradshaw calls shame parfaits and how the impact of this kind of abuse and what it does to our sense of sexuality 
If you don't want to miss that, make sure that you follow Back From The Borderline on your favorite podcast app so that you get an alert for this next episode. So at this point, we're going to dive into the premium portion of the podcast. As a public feed listener, you'll get to listen to the first little bit of this. However, if you're a premium submarine, you will unlock the full episode. So without further ado, let's jump into it. Hey Molly, sure you're sick of hearing from me. Um, I don't even have a question. I just have feedback. This is Michaela, premium submarine, 24 years old from Texas. That's that's my story. Um, I just wanted to let you know that I know there have been a few times that you've expressed having you know the imposter syndrome of feeling like you're leading this podcast, showing people how to you know start their healing journey from BPD, and yet you're not even you know fully healed and you're still dealing with your stuff. And I'm sure you've I know you've said this before, um, but there is no such thing as healed. And I just wanted to say that like I prefer it this way. You know, I would prefer someone who hasn't fully made it to the other side. It's kind of like uh, you know parents when they grow up up and they're older and as a you know you tell them like hey don't you remember what it's like being a kid like it's so easy you know for people to forget even if they are an official licensed therapist whatever it is you know I I just wanted to let you know that I actually think that's a huge benefit and that's one of the reasons I love listening to you and hearing you open up about how it still continues to affect you is really really encouraging and yeah don't feel like you have to share this on the podcast like I just wanted to let you know that you're really appreciated and I I hope you don't feel that way okay bye you're the best (laughs) oh Molly uh this is Spencer just this week's stupid walk I oh I just feel for you I've I've been meaning to send you a voicemail just asking if we can do an episode about body work about really coming back into our somatic experiences because you know for this past about two months now I've been having these issues with my knees from a work-related injury but you know it's really just been taking me until this week to realize that this these the pain that I've been feeling is just it's it's all the stress from the past you know year two years of you know somebody try and kill me I had my car stolen my dad passed and I've just took me till this week to realize that I've the pain that I'm feeling in my knees and that you know radiates out in my other joints is it's it's just from me even walking in fear of what's coming next of even just moving you know even just going down the stairs in my house and um just just today just like focusing on the idea that like I'm safe that I'm okay that I'm moving in the right direction like the the release from that was just so immediate so I just I want you to know that like it'll it's gonna get better and that you don't have to be perfect to be helping other people because that's what you're doing with your work and you're doing that bravely and you're doing that honestly um so thank you sending much love your way bye wow thank you Michaela and Spencer (laughs) I'm listening to that back as I record and already I'm crying so those of you who are not new, you'll know that I cry a lot when I record this podcast and I'm not afraid to cry to all of you because I feel safe with you here, but you have no idea how much I needed to hear 
these things that both Michaela and Spencer said. Thank you both. It can feel very isolating and lonely making this podcast and also kind of scary to talk about how I'm still struggling. And Spencer said something that like, you don't have to be perfect to help other people. And I needed that message. It's kind of funny, right? Because I would say that to someone who came to me and was struggling with the same thing, who was helping others. And I would tell them, I would say, what are you talking about? It's okay that you're struggling, but somehow it's so easy to create crazy high expectations for ourselves that we would never put on other people. (sighs) So this isn't going to be a stupid walk, but it is going to be me just getting real for a while and those on the public feed are going to hear some of this and then obviously it's going to fade out as usual and then it's just going to be me and the premium submarines but I wanted to get real because I am going through a bit of a hard time and it's just because a lot of things are coming up and the reason for that is is because I've been going more into the somatic side of healing and a lot of it is what Spencer brought up Spencer, that voicemail was just so incredibly beautiful. I think we can all like give like snaps for Spencer for some of the stuff that you said there. Both of those voicemails were gorgeous and I I needed to hear them, but just there were some things that Spencer said that resonated with me so much saying that the issues with his knees that he's been having is And the pain that he's been feeling is, quote, all the stress of the last few years. It's my body walking in fear of what's coming next. That is so incredibly powerful. And talking about how he's focusing on the fact that he's okay right now. And that focusing on that provided what he described as some kind of immediate release. I talked a little bit about this on a previous stupid walk that we took with the premium subscribers, but I've been struggling a lot with body stuff. My tight, tight jaw, I've started experiencing like clicking in my jaw and I never had that before. A really, really tight and like almost like constricted neck on my left side, dull low back pain. And what it called to my attention is that I've just completely neglected my body. And you haven't heard this episode yet because it's coming next week. But I did an episode in the shame series that you'll be hearing that talks a lot about sexual trauma. And I'm realizing that the sexual abuse and inappropriate touching, inappropriate comments, the way that I felt so hypersexualized at such a young age, and then the slow little breakdown of my intuition and me being able to say no to things when I was young led me into this constant repetition compulsion which led me to be victimized over and over and over again which whittled down my relationship between my body I had no boundaries and it's like my body 
is yelling at me to listen to it and come back to it. And you know, I talk all about symptoms as saviors and our bodies, the pain, just like Spencer said, even if it's a work-related injury or something like that, if there is pain that is there in our body, it's there to tell us something. And I don't know about you, but I'm really, really good at ignoring my body. I'm really, really good at ignoring its cues. I'm the kind of person that can sit at my desk for hours and hours and hours at a time and not feed myself or go to the bathroom or drink water. And then I come back to my body at like eight hours later. And then I realize, oh my God, I feel angry and like shit and hungry and grouchy. And it's because I'm so used to ignoring my body's cues. I'm so cerebral. I live so much up in my head that it's almost like I have a disconnection between my head and I almost don't even feel anything from the neck down anymore. It's not like I'm paralyzed, but if you understand and you have been through something similar, you might resonate with this. And so in the background, you know, me living my normal life, isn't it so weird sometimes like when you listen to podcasters, you kind of forget that they're like a person like doing their normal stuff in the background. So like in the background, I have been trying my best to learn more about how trauma is stored in the body. And (laughs) it's kind of funny because I am already, my inclination is to go completely cerebral with it and be like, I'm going to study everything that that I need to about how the body keeps the score. And it's like, I'm already going completely mental with it. So it's a challenge for me to learn about something, but actually go into the sensual practices of it. And when I say sensual, I'm not meaning sexual. I'm saying sensual is like our senses and sexuality is part of that, of course. But when I mean sensual, it's like enjoying my food, like taste, hearing things, touching and being present with my body. And part of that has been that I found a somatic experiencing practitioner here who has experience in lots of different types of modalities. She is trauma informed and I've been seeing her and it involves like some stuff that I've just never experienced. And she does a lot of just like, she touches your body. And there have been times where like, she'll touch my chest and I just break down in tears for no reason. And I went and saw her on Saturday and she talks me through like the emotions that come up when she touches certain parts of my body and then memories that come up. And she told me to just scream. Like I felt, cause I said, that I just, I wanted to just, I felt like I was trapped and I wanted to scream. And she goes, so just scream. And I thought, no, I can't scream. What? No. She's like, well, we're the only ones here. Just scream. You can scream. And I thought I was like, I couldn't scream. Like what? I'm not just going to scream in front of you. What? And I finally did it. And I let out this like primal scream. I screamed as loud as I could. And she was just there. And after I screamed, I just like broke down in tears. And 
like think about it right like when is the last time like you have been able to just like scream like scream it all out do you ever feel like you just want to scream but you you push it down and you can't and so working with her has been incredibly liberating and i'm also listening to quite a bit of work by peter levine who is an incredibly prolific trauma-informed therapist. He's written tons of books and there is on Audible this like Audible session that he does called Sexual Healing. It's called Sexual Healing, Transforming the Sacred Wound. And if you have experienced being out of your body and experienced sexual trauma, it's such a safe and beautiful thing i think it's like mm, it's probably three hours long and he provides some guided journeys that helps you get back into your body and one of the exercises is going into the shower and letting the shower head run on different parts of your body so like for example you let it run on your chest then you let it run on your hand then your arm then your stomach and your back and you're supposed to say like this is my stomach this is my neck right and you're like letting the water run on these different parts of your body and becoming aware and what you realize when you do something like that at least what's come up for me is like whoa i don't even think about these parts of my body at all and there what you start realizing when you do some of this work too is you start realizing oh I'm constantly thinking about my neck, but I never think about my legs or my feet. Or I'm constantly much more aware of my stomach, but I never think about my shoulder. Or you know what I mean? And you never think about that as your shoulder. It's really hard to explain, but some of this stuff is just wild. It's wild how we go through our lives not even thinking about these beautiful things that are that are our bodies and how they're getting us through and how we ignore their signals and how we put them through hell and we don't respect them. And the thing is, there is an intelligence within us that will demand us to respect our bodies. And what happens when we ignore them is they start to hurt. They start to develop symptoms. I'm reading a book by uh, James Hollis. It's it's unreleased and I actually have some exciting news. I'm literally going to be interviewing one of my heroes <laughs> in the next couple of weeks and you're going to get to hear it. James Hollis is a Jungian analyst and I'm reading his unreleased book right now that's going to be available later in July, which is when I'm recording this now. So when you hear this, I believe it'll already be available. But he wrote, Symptoms are autonomous intrusions into the flow of daily life, and they're important clues. Clues that point to the astonishing fact that our psyche is observing, evaluating, and critiquing how our hurried executives upstairs on the floor called consciousness are managing our lives. Symptoms often are in a sense, indications that our psyche is not amused by our choices, and so it offers alternatives. And this pretty much is saying symptoms as saviors. And when I hear some of my most admired heroes echoing back what I have been kind of thinking intuitively, it's very validating, but it also 
makes me realize how important it is that I'm doing this work and I'm encouraging all of you to do this work. I got a voicemail that I'm going to play on a future episode from a beautiful premium submarine who, by the way, sends me just some of the most gorgeous emails. I don't always have time to reply to her directly, but Gia, she said something along the lines of like, do you ever, Molly, do you ever get like overwhelmed by doing the work? Like, do you ever just feel like overwhelmed? Yes. And Gia, what I've realized is that overwhelm is me over-intellectualizing this stuff. And that's part of my job as a podcaster is like, I'm, I'm talking, right? I'm not, I can't just like sit here and touch my body and you guys are going to listen, right? Like I have to speak into the microphone and intellectualize things because that's the medium through which I'm working to help my listeners. But yes, I do get overwhelmed. I do feel like I over-intellectualize things and I'm recognizing that tuning into my body and this sensual sensory recovery is just as important as the intellectual part. And if we don't have that, we are creating another imbalance and our body is going to echo that. So how is it that I'm sitting here with each and every one of you every fucking week on this podcast sharing all this incredible information like mother father wound in the shame series has like blown my brain apart in the best possible way i'm realizing things but then how is it that i'm like in debilitating chronic pain and experiencing so many other symptoms my stomach is fucked up like i my sleep schedule is screwed up half the time and i'm recognizing that I have to bring my body into this. And so this is my message to you. Bring your body into it. So let's talk about a few of the most important trauma researchers that are out there right now and some of the things that they're talking about that we can incorporate in some of this healing. So Bessel van der Kolk is a psychiatrist and trauma researcher who has extensively studied the effects of trauma on us and how it's stored inside our bodies. He wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And I have to admit, I, I started his book and it was it's a heavy, heavy read and it's really long and I actually never ended up finishing it. But what I did do was I instead moved to just watching hours of his lectures. There are so many free hours of Bessel van der Kolk speaking available on YouTube or on podcasts. And I highly recommend that you just absorb as much of him talking as you can. If you feel disconnected from your body or you've been through trauma of any kind, physical, sexual, you're going to find his message incredibly validating. But what does he mean when he says the body keeps the score? He's referring to the idea that traumatic experiences can have a profound impact on both our mind and our body. And he believes that traumatic experiences can leave a lasting imprint on our nervous system, affecting our physical and psychological well-being. And he even thinks that trauma can disrupt the normal functioning of our bodies which is what leads to various symptoms like chronic pain, dissociation, hypervigilance, and then even our difficulties with emotion regulation. And 
the statement, the body keeps the score, it emphasizes the importance of recognizing that trauma is not solely an experience that affects the mind or emotions, but also has tangible effects on our body. All right, everyone, you know what that means. That means it's fading out and the rest of this episode is available only for my premium submarines. So if you'd like to unlock the full version of this episode, as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content, you can become one by visiting my website and clicking premium submarines. I also have an exciting announcement. If you're listening to this in the future, things might change because everything does. But as of July 2023, I've actually lowered the price of my premium submarine tier from $10 to $9, which means that for additional content, you only pay $2.25 a week. I mean, come on, how much better does it get than that? And then you get full episodes and hundreds of hours of bonus content. In addition to that, I've also just released a brand new tier on Patreon called Ultra Premium Submarine. And as of now, that's priced at $13 a month, which works out to just being $3.25 a week. And the additional content that I'm going to be doing with that is providing voice notes to my premium submarines throughout the week. What that's going to look like is me just sharing some little aha moments and more personal reflections throughout my journey that are going to be maybe between two to ten minutes long throughout the week. I just wanted to give listeners who want a little bit more Molly time, a little more personal with me, the ability to do that. So check out my patreon tiers if you'd like to upgrade and unlock this full episode and also access my soon to be coming voice notes as well you can check that out on my website at backfromtheborderline.com also i've just started a brand new podcast called night night bitch and it is a mystical bedtime story podcast and i've already received so much positive feedback so for those of you who have checked it out and are baking that into your nighttime routine i love that i have received some emails saying that listeners are listening to it before bed some are listening to fall asleep some are even just listening to it on walks or turning it on when they feel particularly anxious so i'm really excited to see people enjoying that The rest of this full episode actually includes a guided visualization. Not only do I continue talking about my reflections about somatic experiencing and how trauma is held in our bodies, I went ahead and researched the work of Peter Levine and using his work as a guiding light and inspiration, I put together a pendulation exercise that you can use so that's included in this full episode so if you want to unlock that you can do that by signing up for premium if you're not quite ready to become a premium submarine or you're not financially able to do so it's totally okay you can support my work by rating the podcast writing a review or even better yet the best thing that you can do for me above all else is sharing the episode with somebody that you care about that you think it could help especially this shame series if we could share this shame series far and wide that's a really good thing that we could be doing for the world so that's it for today but i'll leave you with my sign off that i'm making a part of the end of each episode now i want you to never forget that you haven't met all parts of yourself yet 
within your weaknesses, your inner chaos, and your inner disorder actually lies your greatest strength. If only you would dare to shine a light on it and transmute it. We have to get to a point where we're willing to be the fool to begin our hero's journey. Anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. See you next Tuesday. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.